We're back for another episode of Well, Not Perfect. I've been looking forward to sharing this one with you all. I had the honor to sit down with Dr. Donna Baptiste. I had the opportunity to get to know Dr. Baptiste in 2020 during Simply Be's diversity, equity, and inclusion panel discussion. Dr. Baptiste is the department chair of the Master's of Arts degree in counseling at the Family Institute at Northwestern University, as well as a licensed psychologist. She is an incredible human with a passion for mentoring other professional clinicians, treating families, and promoting equity. In this episode, you will hear me discuss both my personal and professional takeaways that have since changed the way I parent and lead. Like me, I'm confident that you'll walk away feeling inspired. Listen in as we dive deep into the hot topics of diversity and inclusion and the importance of raising informed children who appreciate diversity and value inclusion. We talk about tangible ways that parents can raise a generation who embody these values in their everyday actions. Donna's insights provide us all with the powerful reminder that one of the most essential roles in a parent's life is to bring up children who create a world more equitable than the one that we live in today. Every parent will have an opportunity to help their children to see how differences and inequality exists. And the broader that we are able to show them these things, inequity and equality and a way in which we live in the world where we might be advantaged, but other people are not, I think it would be important. In today's episode, you will learn how to raise children to be inclusive members of society, the relationship between race, identity, and mental health, and finally, strategies and advice for how to have uncomfortable conversations with your loved ones. Welcome to another episode of Well, Not Perfect. this podcast, I really wanted to come in as a parent and have you talk to me like a parent who's really working on trying to have children who are inclusive and aware of how there's privilege built into kind of the way that they live because they live in, I think, a privileged upper middle class community and they go to a primarily white school. And so I just wanted to have you teach me and hopefully I can ask questions that our listeners would be asking if they were lucky enough to have you in the room and have people kind of just eavesdrop into the conversation and learn from it, if that's okay with you. Absolutely. And because this is a mental health podcast, I was wondering the first question um, that came to my mind was how does the conversations of inclusion and race intersect in mental health when we're working on children's well-being and their mental resilience and all of those things that we do as a practice and as we do as therapists, how does that, how does mental health intersect with equity and inclusion and making sure that we have informed and well-educated kids? So I think first we must start by defining the the thing we're looking at, right? So this whole idea of, we have so many words we use now, diversity and inclusion and racism and anti-racism and so on. And I'm not exactly sure if there are times when we're talking, we're all talking about the same thing, but this is the 101, at least my understanding, but this will be the common understanding that in the world, we have personal identities, you know, where our professional identities, and then we have also social identities. And it groups us or people group us into various things, right? Races and ethnic groups and 
religious groups and you know national like i'm an immigrant and they're but other people are not and um we we're different based in education and all that race is the big one that everybody talks about because it's a huge envelope and of course we talk black white but there are others my point about this is that the world is made up and every community is made up of people with different social backgrounds and power and 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 our status in society is it falls right in line with the groups we belong to and this is where you have the idea of privilege and disadvantage and most people know it in race so we think of whites as privileged and people that are non-white as not always holding the keys to things in society and you can know this by just looking at for example the u.s government the makeup but you also have gender men versus women versus other uh, genders that are not always represented and so that is the nature of the world it's not going to change it's actually the voices of i would say others that are not privileged are getting stronger around the world and the world is no more connected so you might think well nothing is happening here but then you pop your tv on or you go on the internet and there it is some group demanding justice or voice or equality and the relation to mental health is to function well to live well actually as a part of a moral human being in the world we must appreciate differences diversity social group differences we must be able to navigate it well. We must be able to relate to whoever is other in a way that allows them to feel respected, that all of the things you would think of as being socially and emotionally intelligent. And little people that tumble out of us, our children wouldn't know that automatically. In fact, if we do nothing, they're likely to pick up many of the biases those of us that our adults live with. And so it is incumbent on parents and loved ones that raise young people from the earliest socialization to help them to understand, I would say, social group differences and to respect it. We do it in other ways, personality. We do that well when we raise children. We must also do it in relation to social identity groups. And we must also help young people, children and teenagers and so on to respect differences, to understand the power differences in society, and also to be able to be cross-culturally savvy and respectful, where this becomes ordinary to them. So that is my honest opinion on how we raise young people to function in the world. It was always true. It could not be truer these days. Yeah, the conversations have started and there are more and more influences that are saying that this is something that we have to look at more than we ever have in the past. And in the 60s with the civil rights movement, I would imagine it was also a big, heavy conversation because of everything that was being done. And that was half a century ago. How do you think that it has like ebbed and flowed. I mean, did it kind of hit its peak around the civil rights movement? And then did it lull for a while? Is it back up on a peak? I mean, how do you kind of see like history kind of ebbing and flowing? And are we more conscious of it? Are we talking about it more now than we did in the sixties with the civil rights movement? Or has it 
increased in a good way? Like, is it more prominent than it was back then? Or is it probably about the same level of energy? So, you know, the United States, I would say the civil rights movement that we think about the 60s and 70s, you know, even some of the the biggest areas of, I would say, privilege and disadvantage were around race, white, black, right? Where you had so many um, black and African-American people saying, we want voice and we want share and we want ownership of a country we live in and we want to be respected, we want rights. And there was something really powerful about that and the thing to know is there were allies of, of all kinds of races that were part of that movement, not just black people, right? And um, there were important concessions there that built a fabulous foundation. But there were other conversations going on though that, and so in some ways there's that, we talk of the civil rights movement, there have been many little ones around with, with different identity groups that do not hold um, privilege and the ability to 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 lead things and to be a, a voice at the table to design how we live. They, they have also uh, there are times when they have also come to the force. I'm thinking LGBTQ marriage. I'm thinking of women's rights. I'm thinking of and other social groups. I mean, around 9/11, where some of the um, yes, there were atrocious things perpetuated by members of one racial and ethnic group, right? Middle Easterners, but you know what? It became the brush that targeted every other Middle Eastern person in the United States. And they began to say, why? Why are we being profiled? And so there are, there's the big civil rights movement, but there are many other moments in the history of the United States where the group that is left out of the mix, they rise up and say, not good enough. It is not going to happen. And I think it's going to continue. Now, race is the one that most people focus on. And there's anti-racism work is so powerful. It's like, um, you could say in some ways, the superfood of these discussions. And it tends to bring other, it, it tends to elevate the discourse about how we live and how we treat people and so on. So it will always be one of the most powerful conversations we have. And it's a good place for parents to start. It, it's a good place for self-reflection. How am I working with people that are not my race and, uh, that are non-white or that are this and some of that whole all the ferment about critical race theory and all that is about race but there are other groups sitting on the side watching this thinking we also want share and voice and so i think for mental health in therapy rooms it walks in with a client it walks in with a client it walks in with somebody that you're going to work with so clinicians must be aware and we must be ready. And then those of us, we raise children, we must also as clinical providers, for example, also showcase those same qualities we bring with our clients in our families and encourage our family members to also take on those postures. So, and parents have a unique opportunity to do this with young minds, but they must also be there themselves, right? Absolutely. Because obviously the role model is the parent and the child will follow. And if the parent is having these conversations in their home, it will increase mental resilience and mental health and mental resilience in my mind are just more and more intertwined because the mental illness to mental health, to mental wellness, to, you know, I'm in a place where I've moved that into mental resilience. And yes. in the therapy session, it's not just about the 
problem of anxiety. It's not just about the problem of a parent's divorce. It's no longer about a problem to be fixed. I think mental health is turning into a more holistic view of the brain. And, you know, some may say that this conversation is a stretch because it's not mental illness or it's not mental health related, but part of trying to shatter the ideals of mental health is having conversations that are outside of the normal expectation and saying, talking about inclusion, talking about anti-racism, that is mental health because mental health is resilience. And if we are resilient because we can work with others, we can handle conflict better. That's Mm -hmm. a common therapy discussion. Mm -hmm. Or if we are more respectful of other people, then people respect us back. And then we have less confusion or less feelings internally about why we're being disrespected. So I don't find this conversation to be a far leap if we kind of follow the line of mental health to mental wellness to mental resilience and having these conversations and then including them in our field, I think is very powerful. Mm -hmm. And I'm always thinking about how to make my kids more resilient, a pro-social, a pro-mental health approach to what I do with my own children, not necessarily always looking at my kid and saying, oh, he has anxiety. I need to fix that. Or he seems to have low self-esteem. I need to fix Mm -hmm. that. You know, I'm looking at my kids and thinking, how are they resilient? How am I improving their ability to adapt? How am I uh, Mm -hmm. improving their ability to be flexible and to work with different people? And, you know, I have my approaches as a parent. And one of them is to get involved myself. And so that they see through action that I'm having these conversations and changing myself and growing myself. I'm not just pointing at them and saying they can read a book or they can teach that in school. I'm, I'm trying to immerse that in such a natural way, just like I try to naturally manage my anxiety with mindfulness so that my kids can pick up on that and learn from that without kind of shoving it down their, you know, into their ears and, um, into their brains. I'm trying to just naturally create this thing, but I have to be aware of my own, you know, background, my own either lack of exposure or lack of education or all the things that I think can cause unconscious bias and unconscious racism and all those things. So as a parent, I really love having these conversations because then I learn something new and it's a subtle change in the way I talk to them, or it's a subtle change in the way that I problem solve with them. But I don't always know what else I can do. And so what is within a parent's um, ability to talk about these things? Is it, you know, picking up on the news and media and continuing the conversation with them? Is it buying a book? What are, what are, you know, one or two ways that as a parent, we can start to think about these conversations in the realm of this is making my kid more resilient. Oh, just love the question. Um, and so what, 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 what I think of when you talk about that is a, someone raising children that Exact, that know the target you want. You want your children to be, it sounds like not just socially aware, emotionally intelligent, but also culturally um, sound and grounded. And you, and 
to be in a world where they they live with peers of other diff of different backgrounds and they're competent and confident it also sounds like and ready that's 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 the idea right i love that but not every parent is there and some are getting there and not every parent they're making their way there but I like it because it defines the, I think as parents, when you think of raising young people, there are skills we take for granted. You want them to be adaptive and disciplined and there are things we go for, right? Immediately. You do sports so they could learn how to sort of understand difficult moments and get past it and get stronger as people. You wanna strengthen their will so they could get out of bed and do stuff they need to do. Do you want them to follow your, your guidelines so and, and work within limits in the in the lexicon of parenting these days we must also put some of the things you talked about i want my child to be respectful of others to learn how to live and function with people that are different to show bc savvy to have great cross-cultural skills so you have defined that as also an area of intelligence social and emotionally we want for your children so first it must start there right and then there are opportunities, I think, so many natural ones. As tough as the, in the, the, di the national dialogues about race have been in the country, of race and disadvantage and, you know, say white nationalism, one of the beautiful things coming out of it are opportunities. Almost everywhere you look, there's a kind of an awakening in the country. And for depending on the age of the child, parents can use those so well because they know exactly where they're going and you're not going to get there right away, but the opportunities are available to talk to young people, um, the people you raise. And it's, it's, it follows the usual, you know, the usual ways in which we socialize. You have them to see it, be curious about it. You answer their questions, there are teaching moments, and then there are intentional opportunities of exposure. And, and there are times when it comes on the other side, there is correction and a little bit of rebuke or discipline when you hear there's straying off a path you want. So all of that is the same. And you're patient with it, using all the natural opportunities that are available, but also doing the thing that parents have done in other areas of life. And it sounds like you are doing that. That's how you build it. Yeah, that's what I'm hearing you say. And to put that concretely, I'm hearing you say that there are opportunities where you want to teach your child and discuss and learn and explore and be curious and have that moment with them and try to have those moments nine times out of 10, because I think that's where they grow. But yeah. then the one out of 10 is the discipline and the structure to, to really define boundaries for them when they do cross the line there there's plenty of times when kids do that. I don't think kids cross the line on purpose as much as we think that they do. We kind of overestimate how adult they really are. And we don't appreciate that they are children. And most yes. of the time they have good intentions. They just make really bad mistakes or choices. And I think right now, developmentally, we're probably talking about the five to 10 year old range. I'm assuming how we're just talking yeah, about that. Time. Adolescence, even you hear them, you hear them use a term that you know is an insult or pejorative about a social group that's different from them, and you provide what you always do: gentle correction, rebuke, a little, bit, sometimes a little bit of discipline, or sometimes it, it's a point of curiosity, and you explain why this is not okay. And so there will be so many moments, and um, not all, not always they not they wouldn't always accept your influence, but the, in other areas we do it anyway. 
right? Mm -hmm. we, do, we provide what they need and they will be grumpy sometimes or push back, give a little lip. But I would say each opportunity, because parenting is the influence socialization is cumulative, it is consistent, it is available, and it is, um, what should I say? You know, it's love in a different, in, in, in its own way. And so we do it. We do, and we do mm -hmm. it throughout the experience. And so if you start early, I adolescence, would you have those moments? Still, of course. But you do what you do. You do what you do as a parent. There's two words that you just said that I think really fits mm -hmm. into how to parent with anti-racism and inclusive family. One is, you said consistent. And the other one you said is available. And I think to be consistent in conversations about differences and then to be available to have those conversations without just black and white punishment, mm -hmm. telling them that that's wrong, don't talk like that, would be an example of kind of a black and white correction rather than this is, you know, this is what you said, this is the impact it had on the other person. Yeah. This is what I'd like you to say in the future. This is the impact on the person if you say that in the future. So giving kids feedback that are based in one reflection, because sometimes kids don't even know what they did or said. So I think reflecting mm -hmm. back to them and say, when you called that person weird looking, the impact of that is it tells them that they're bad because they're different than you. And what I'd like you to say next time is, that person looks different than me mm -hmm. because that invites a conversation of differences. That's just kind of an off the top of my head example of how to have conversations. And, you know, I try to kind of take the body of my knowledge and then like kind of build tentacles off of it. So, you know, the, the root of my professionalism and expertise is eating disorders and perfectionism. Mm -hmm. So I'm very aware of different body shapes and sizes and colors. And when my kids started noticing different body shapes at the grocery store, for example, I had one of my kids turn around and ask, why is her belly so big? Mm -hmm. And I turned around and I saw a woman in a larger body. And in that moment, I had to deal with how my kids were treating and acting towards someone who yeah. um, was different. We mm -hmm. had to deal with that on scene and it's so hard in the moment, but the first thing I did, and, you know, I think if every parent can do this and I've not done this every time, but because I've just been inundated with that treatment and with that, um, expertise, I was prepared for that one situation. Not all situations have I been prepared for. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, first I took a really big deep breath and just regulated my body because I knew I was triggered. I knew I was activated. Yeah. And. I said, you know, she has a body and you have a body and they all look different. And let's, you know, get back to the, you know, the register and use my credit card, you know, practice using my credit card. And I distracted them <laughs> and I kind of got them out of there. But, but then in the car, you know, I followed up and I just said, you know, her body was bigger in the belly and sometimes people are bigger in the arms and sometimes people are bigger in the chest and sometimes they're bigger in the back. And okay. I was just like, you know, everyone's bigger <laughs> in different places and that is different and it's not weird. So I just try to like give them an opportunity, but I, I think that might be an example of how I would deal with race next time, you know, saying if they, if they said something, you know, derogatory about the differences, I would need to really reframe that for them. And if they continue to do it, I would start punishing them because 
more than one or well, two of those acts, <laughs> I would start to punish. Exactly. But, All of the yeah. tools of parenting. And um, you'd be surprised how, how early self-observations. My son was, um, my son is now 32 years old. So as, as, a, as a black man, I, so he was around, I want to say, I want to say four years old, somewhere between four and five. So let's say four and a half. This stands out to me, even though he's older, because it was so startling to me. And uh, I took him to a soccer field because he loved to use the kicking around with his dad. So he loved to play soccer. And there were a group of young boys playing white, predominantly white. And so I said, hey, just, you know, take the ball and go get into the game. And he held back. So I said, hey, what's going on? His name is Sule. Uh, Sule. And he said, I don't think they're going to want me. So I said, why? What do you mean? You know, I'm trying to encourage him. I didn't even think about a race. I thought, let me encourage him to make friends. I said, hey, you just you just say, hey, I'm Sule and I want to jump in. And he held back a lot. And then he said, I said, why do you think they wouldn't want you to play with them? He said, because I'm black. I'd be like, oh my gosh. I was so startled mm-hmm. at his self-observation of something. I And it opened my eyes to things that I must do to help him to, well, one, at the time I was thinking about how to help him with a social skill, which is enter a play group, but also, you know, in some ways to be confident, but it opened my eyes to how early, that is a, what I just told you, true story of how early a child can get an awareness of feeling different or, or feeling inferior. And on mm-hmm. the other end of feeling, dif- of seeing difference or feel and feeling that is difference is not okay. So you have it on both ends. But I'll tell you another story. My son, so now he's a teenager and they're sleeping over at my house and I heard them talking about people, LGBTQ people using a slur. And so here's me, the same mother now. So Sule is probably on the other end of things, probably heterosexual and feeling superior. And they're laughing with each other, very joking. You're the blah, 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 blah. And um, it was another opportunity on the other end to say, hey, not okay. I don't want you to use that word in my house. You, you, you Why use, you know, this is it just, it could make somebody that's LGBTQ feel insulted, blah, blah, blah. My point is, it's easy to see race on the way he's on the other end disadvantaged, but every parent, I think, will have an opportunity to help us to, uh, of their children to see how differences and inequality exists and how hurtful that could be in so many domains in social identity groups, so that religion and all that. And the broader that we are able to show them these things, inequity and equality and a way in which we live in the world where we might be advantaged, but other people are not, I think it will be important. And so there will be many, many opportunities. Race is the easiest one, but there are others. So, and it will exist in the same space of parenting. And so we must take the, we must take on the charge to do this and do this well ourselves as parents. Throughout my 10 years as a therapist, I've learned a thing or two about growth. I've had the honor of supporting clients and becoming more resilient people, overcoming obstacles, and achieving their goals. What I've learned through this process is that there are five essential steps in every growth journey. With the goal of making personal growth accessible to all, I use these steps to create a planner series so that anyone can work on their growth anytime and anywhere. Each step includes pages of insight and skills from my personal and professional experiences and ends with 30 days of space for you to practice what you've learned. Personal growth isn't a quick process, but this series is designed to make it easy and fun. 
Learn more at www.simplybecounseling.net slash planners. And be sure to check out the subscription option, which gets you a planner delivered to your door every month for the next five months. Since you're a Well Not Perfect listener, you can get 10% off on any order using code WELLNOTPERFECT. There's no better day than today to tap into your own growth and resiliency. People say, like those of us that are professionals, we believe this and we do this and we talk about this in professional spaces. I am not sure professional and personal are that divided because you can't be that way in your professional life and go home um, into your circles and be business as usual. Um, We must be congruent people in the spaces that we live. So I'm hearing you doing it at work and in personal life and in parenting and with friends. And I love that. I love that, Audrey. It's good. Thank you. Thank you. I um, have made sure to be very thoughtful and mindful because I do believe in consistency and availability. And when a lot of pressure came about maybe a year ago or longer, I mean, it's hard at these COVID years to know when, but there was these black screens on social media that the, for the whole day, they would not post anything, just one black screen in an effort to show solidarity and support for black lives matter. And I remember thinking about that long and hard. And I thought I can do that. We can all do that. And that's a very, very micro level of influence, which I loved And I knew that my capacity was much greater. And so I posted it, but I didn't really spend all my time firing away on social media to kind of almost jump on a bandwagon. I wanted to do a long-term consistent solution. And that started with the webinar that you were so graciously able to attend and speak on the the panel. It's still on our website. And also think about how am I going to do this forever and how am I going to leave it as a legacy? And the thought of that, I knew it was a seed that I planted and I watered and, you know, really have tried to surround myself by really inspiring people so that I could build a great idea. And it has now, you know, resolved into a new program that's going to be starting at Simply Be in the fall of 2022. And I'm really proud of it. And I also think that I'm more proud of the fact that I chose to take the long road and to really realize that this is like a long-term commitment and consistency and availability that our practice is reliable, Mm -hmm. that we can provide the information and the training. And we'll do that mostly in school districts and mostly at the corporate level in small businesses. So we'll do a top-down approach because what I'm learning is that really impacting institutions is the way that we need to address this. And we're doing that institutionally through small business and um, school districts, which is kind of our wheelhouse. But, you know, I'm also trying to do it with my kids and the conversation I'm having with you today is like sitting down and having a cup of coffee with you at a coffee shop. You know, I don't (laughs) want to make this so unrelatable and intangible that it feels like an academic conversation. Cause Mm -hmm. I listen to a lot of those podcasts and, you know, it feels so academic and so impossible to Mm -hmm. kind of penetrate into change that I'm, you know, 
like a squirrel harvesting all my nuts and trying to put them in this little corner <laughs> and create something that feels feels much more kind of um, grassroots level than mm-hmm. you know trying to get in to all of the conversations that feel so impressive, you know, UCLA professors and legal and all of these things that are so powerful at the institutional level, like the government level. And, yeah. you know, I'm like, what, what can I do down here? <laughs> I can, you know, so that's really where I'm coming from. And I just hope that when people are listening, they believe that they can do something too. They can, you know, top my head, like I'm, my daughter's in a brownie troops, you know, what can the brownie troops do and how can they have that conversation or do something to earn a patch to like make this a part of their system. So mm-hmm. these are just the conversations that I think are really important, but we have to believe that we can influence change. And that, that might just be you influencing your children and your children going off and being that politician, like who knows, but. Oh, um, I, I resonate with that. I resonate <laughs> with that because I think, um, you know, there's a huge payoff for raising young people to appreciate diversity or you could say multicultural, a multicultural society, and also to function well in it. I think the payoff is these are the leaders of the future. There is good research that says, for example, generations after us. So I'm Gen Xer, right? The generations after us, the the cohorts after us, so the millennials and the Gen Zs and so on. The thing about them I don't even know what they're calling the the younger generations right now. Some of them have become fierce about the things that we hesitated about. So we see definitely climate change and all that. They're big on like, do it, do it, or gun violence and so on. Well, guess what? The research says that this group are impatient and restless about diversity and inequality and so on. So, and if you think of them 20, 30, 40 years from now, they will carry a message that we it, we paid a price to our generations. You know, it wasn't okay. So raising young people this way, I mean, the future is bright. If you hear them talk right now, millennials, I would say this in, in the program that I lead in graduate education, most of are millennials. They carry a passion for multiculturalism that you can only dream of. And it's not, it's not just people of color. They yeah. are demanding change of institutions that is beautiful. And it's because they were raised in a world where it was that important and people talked about it. So I think in some ways you're raising your future, our future, yeah, right? Thank you. And being, you know, being in like the older and older generations, I think when you see that you have an opportunity to influence the next generation through mentorship, and that's what you're doing at the graduate school. And I'm hiring people 10 or more years younger than me now. So I'm also trying to influence the next generation because I can't do it all. You know, you can't do it all. You can't go out and, you know, preach to the, you know, masses maybe, but one of your students can, and your influence is so powerful that there's levels of change and influence that we'll never get to see the fruits of the labor. But, you know, that's what we're trying to talk about here, which is, you can, you know, we can make one new shift in our mindset and speak it out loud. And then when you speak it out loud, it creates its own kind of vibration out into the world and people listen and it grows and it's a really magical thing. And that's what you're talking about. And education is where that is at. Do you have, you know, what are, what's your current work right now um, with graduate students to kind of um, promote this message? 
Well, I'm uh, the department chair of counseling, a counseling program. Well, not just a counseling program, a counseling uh, master of arts degree at Northwestern University at the Family Institute Northwestern. And in our program, there's about 800 plus students. And uh, we have about 30 faculty. And it is my honor and privilege every day to train the future mental health. Well, some, they're already in training, so they're already in mental health practice to to serve well first to serve people well and to really and i love what you said about not just treat mental illness but also to promote mental wellness so those people that you wouldn't call them mentally ill but some of them are not living well um so we can be a stronger people and we could live longer and it's i mean mind body connections right now you know that's a we can pre we're preaching to the quiet people get that so that's the first objective but to do that but also to see vulnerability to see underserved populations and to care about them and to be able to do it well. I just wrote a book, it's in the final stages for Cambridge Press about serving a group that has been in some ways misunderstood in, in the United States, psychotherapy with black women and how to, who have carried, where they live both and lives powerfully. And there are other groups that are represented this way, powerfully participating in all of the discourses of United States about equality, but also paying a price in their personal lives of mental and emotional burden that affects their health. And they're also a voice now crying out for change. Um, they live in that boat and will. So helping mm -hmm. us to see these groups and other groups are doing the same thing and to serve them well, to be multiculturally competent. Mm -hmm. Honor and privilege to do that. The thing that came to my mind when you said that was there's a sacrifice to being the representation or the pioneer or the agent that influences the world. So it can be a black woman in an all white corporate setting, right? There's a sacrifice that she's taking in order to be there for like the next generations. And you don't want that to impact their well being. You don't want that to impact how they are in the home and it does. And so there's, there's a lot that we have to also acknowledge and appreciate that if you're going to talk to your kids about this, if you're going to be a professional in a very, you know, homogenous environment, let's say, then there's a sacrifice and that's where mental health comes in because you have to take care of yourself Yes, and, you know, I own a small business during COVID. Like there's a sacrifice to that oh, for the greater good. And to really create a new program during COVID, like there's a sacrifice and that stress goes home with me. And, you know, you have that as well. So the balancing of yes, be the agent and, you know, carry the message strong and take care of yourself in the background. So you don't have burnout, depression or anxiety or any of those things. So again, you know, this circles back to mental health because it's, if you choose to be the agent on a micro level or macro level, then your mental health needs to be taken care of in the background. And if it's not, that's where we go back to that illness rather than oh, absolutely. resilience. Mm -hmm. You're resonating with me. <laughs> COVID produced a lot more work for us, but I also, I would say as a, I would live, um, I try to live an integrated life. So I'm a mental health provider, 
which carries a need for self-care, an educator, a, le a Black leader. And I would say that part of my own journey is to recognize, I would, uh, let's call it the vulnerabilities in my own life. Um, places in which, based on race and gender, with Black women, it's gendered racism, right? There are insults that come my way as a woman, as a Black mm -hmm. female leader in, in, in a prestigious institution. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the end of each day, or at least periodically, you must take a, a, a stock of how, how am I doing? Am I taking the advice I give my clients and students and you know people that report to me? And so am I living well? And there are times that I'm like, no, I'm not, not sleeping well. Too much rumination in my life, not enough social connection because I'm busy at work. And so, yeah, I think periodically we must take you must do a little audits and then make corrections to live well. Because I want to go to distance. I want to. I want to interact with my great grandchildren. And the only way to do that is to take care of self. Yeah, I love that. Self. Yeah, and it's it's a it's going to be a battle. It's a constant message, and we must do it. Those of us that are leaders. Mm -hmm. And we are all leaders. And I kind of want to. I kind of want to end on that, which is you can be a leader in your home with your children. Well, absolutely. That's what parenting is. Yes. And to not underestimate that if you work, if you don't work, it does not matter because you're a leader in your home and you're creating, you're raising the next president or the next Senator or the next doctor. And, absolutely. um, that needs to be honored and recognized. And, you know, if that's not enough for you, then there are other very creative opportunities, right. You know, in your community that with the, you know, the, grace and blessings of the internet. That's one. We can find the right, re the right resources and organizations to become leaders um, at any level we decide to do and really impact anti-racism and promote inclusion. And I think that's, you know, really powerful and you really were inspiring. I mean, I know that the work, the webinar we had last time you were really a big part of that. And that message has continued with hundreds of downloads. You know, let that be your message today. Uh, I think coming out of that, the work of, of fighting isms or raising children that will see them and want to be allies against them, isms of all kinds, racism and sexism and all that, that the ordinary moments of parenting, starting from really little, that's where these battles are won. So by the time a child grows up, they are ready and tested and it will be it become it natural to them and we see that in homes where children are raised that way mm -hmm. so parents shouldn't think you do not necessarily have to march in the streets you know or light a fire somewhere no 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 those moments are available and it's the ordinary work of parenting parents themselves must first embrace this idea ordinary parenting i love that ordinary parenting, ordinary parenting. and then the other two words i picked up from you is consistent and available Consistent, available, and ready to, yeah, do what parents have always done. Guide, mm -hmm. teach, love, discipline um, as part of shaping the next generation mm -hmm. of well-functional and functional and useful and constructive citizens mm -hmm. uh, in, a, in an increasingly complex world. Yes. Well, thank you for coming on here and sharing that word with mm -hmm. everybody. And if anyone needs to find you or contact you, uh, what information we have, we're going to add to the show notes and we hope to continue this conversation. And I think you need to come back. 
<laughs> yeah, Audrey, I appreciate the invite. Thank you for having me. And it's Thank wonderful. You so. It's been wonderful. Lab. I enjoyed this conversation. It's 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 lighting me up a little bit. So, yeah, I'm going to take it with me throughout my my uh, the winter quarter of our program. Well, thank you for coming on here. And this is another episode of Well, Not Perfect. Thank you for listening to season three. Make sure you never miss an episode by hitting the subscribe button and consider leaving me a review. And for more information, all things podcast, you can connect with us on Instagram at Well, Not Perfect. See you next week.